Okay, welcome back, everybody, to Don't Come After Me. With Trish and Ish. Everyone's favorite <laughs> literature podcast. It's been a while since we've recorded one of these. So long, in fact, that we are now in different cities. Isn't that right? We're in different provinces, in fact. Even. Different provinces even, yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. a bit sad, but this is the way of life. It's it's sad for um, the technical aspect of this show, for sure. Hopefully, you listening uh, don't sense it. Yeah, you didn't have to tell them about that, but yeah. Yeah, this has been hell. The last on, hour and ten minutes, roughly, have been devoted to figuring out the logistics of well, setting up some um, some banter as well some bantering some as well. banter oh this is a perfect 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 segue <laughs> yes a perfect segue to today's book which is what is it it is the remains of the day by kazuo ishiguro it's a good one the cla- a modern classic very very good one this is as i have mentioned earlier uh this is one of my favorite books and, You've uh, said that it's your favorite book to me. I know, before. but I don't. I don't know if I want to like commit fully to it being my favorite book. But it's definitely. I've read it like maybe three times by now. Um, yeah, it's in the conversation. Yeah. It's in the running. It's in the running for sure. It's the book that I come back to when I think about some sort of contemporary literary book that. Um, makes me like feel something for the characters like I like a lot of contemporary literary fiction but I don't necessarily feel emotional um, like for the characters the way that I do for this book so and I don't like a lot of I don't like a lot of contemporary literary fiction and even I thought this was quite good yeah. So, spoiler Even alert. It, could you call this contemporary? It was written in 1988, but... I mean, yeah. You know. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, pretty much anything in the 20th century or later is contemporary in my book. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> yeah, okay, no, but, so. uh, yeah, it remains of the day. It is It is sort of um, Kazuo Ishiguro's sort of breakout novel, I guess it's fair to say. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and he's and one the of the one more, that... like, he's one of the bigger figures in modern English language sort of literary yeah. fiction. Yeah, like I, I was saying earlier that I, I think he's up there with, like, Zadie Smith and Michael, what's it? Andachi. Yep, Andachi, yep. Salman Rushdie, um, who wrote the introduction to my edition of the book. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, he, he's uh, up there for yeah, sure. Yeah, he's up there with those those guys. Anyway, so that's this episode. It's going to be a loosey-goosey episode in a lot of ways. Unfortunately, I'm not as prepared for this episode as I was for Heart of Darkness. <laughs> we don't need to is, disclose any of this. Know, unfortunate because <laughs> sort of a looser like discussion. A yeah, we're going to have a looser discussion, but I think you have a lot to say about this book because, like you said, you've read it like what three or four times, and it's one of your favorites. You've analyzed it in a school. English class, a university level English class even, and so you you know this yes. book back to front. You know this book as well, well as, as Mr. Stevens knows the halls of Darlington Hall. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was an elegant, elegantly put. Um, yeah, I, so I think you'll have a lot to say about it. I'll try to say a little bit about it as well. I'm a fan of this book. I don't think I 
like it quite as much as you, but I respect and admire a lot about it. But I guess we'll get to all of that in due course. Um, We do have a, theoretically, a structure we like to keep these episodes (laughs) to, don't we? And um, I suppose the first thing we should do is briefly, and I do mean quite briefly, discuss the author of the book, Mr. uh, Not Mr. Sir Kazuo Ishiguro. Oh, that's right. Um, and a bit what about his life. Your, what have your Wikipedia findings yielded? Wikipedia, oh, I don't know why you would say that. It's uh, <laughs> Wikipedia is a good starting place maybe for research, but uh, you have to do a lot more than that to get a good grasp on the subject. <laughs> uh, so I don't know why you would say Wikipedia. It's beyond me. But... Um, just very briefly, we're going to just tear through this guy's life, the highlights. <laughs> uh, he's, not he's, got gonna... a very, he's got a very interesting life. If you Compared look to at Conrad, aspects, I don't know. Aspects of it, not the actual events of it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the events, yeah. Compared to Conrad, not to diss the guy. I mean, my life's more boring than both of them. But compared to Conrad, even Agatha Christie, come on. <laughs> Well, that, Those okay, guys had interesting see. lives. Let's see. Let's hear about him. What so, yeah. Kazuo Ishiguro, he was born in 1954 in Nagasaki, Japan. His dad was an oceanographer. So, he was out there Ooh. measuring currents, I guess. Is that what oceanographers do? Probably. Something to that effect. He and his family moved from Japan to Surrey in England in 1960. This would have made him six, probably, maybe five. Mm. Um, and that's where he grew up. That's, that's, where he... that's a pretty big culture shock, Japan to England. Yeah, I mean, I guess besides being left side of the road driving island constitutional monarchies, besides those things, they're pretty different <laughs> countries. Um, yeah, I would yeah. Say. But, um, yeah, so he grew up in England for the you know, rest of his life. He did a bunch of random <laughs> stuff. He went to grammar school. That's quite English, I guess. Uh, the word, the term grammar school, <laughs> I guess you just call it sort of a higher-end public school in the side of the Atlantic. But uh, I think he was, like, pretty into music. He played guitar and all that in, in his teen years, and I think he continued to be musically inclined afterwards um oh, i just remembered something about him please feel free to interject you know more about wait. him than it'll i do it'll have to wait till we get to the book actually you're cruelly but. making me do this even though you know more about <laughs> him than i do we established that you are gonna do the author spotlight <laughs> it's, a pretty it's busy not my week. fault that you didn't prepare <laughs> yeah it's been a busy week <laughs> but um yeah, he was pretty involved in music, and I think that's still a part of his life today. Um, okay, I'm going to say my fact now. Yeah, call it, say it. So, Okay, so um, I think I read somewhere that um, Remains of the Day um, was actually partially inspired by uh, Kazuo Ishiguro listening to the music of Tom Waits. Oh, really? Yeah. Solid. Which is surprising, eh? You wouldn't um, necessarily uh, associate him with Stevens. No, not with Stevens, but it's not surprising to me that Ishiguro listens to Tom Waits. Mm-hmm. And I can see it. There's a there's kind of maybe kind of a melancholy quality to a lot I of think his it, stuff. It, 
It was the song specifically Ruby's Arms okay. that inspired Remains of the Day. I actually don't know that one, but <laughs> I like Tom Waits. He's pretty good. Pretty I, think cool I, I think I listened to it a few times after I heard that fact, but clearly the, you know, it did not inspire the same you're not going to write a book. Of ideas. You can write a book based <laughs> on it. No, unfortunately, I yeah, wish. We, we say that now. We'll see. Yeah. So his muse. Yeah, Tom Waits was his muse, I guess. Uh, so I believe uh, after that, um, I believe he took some time in the early '70s. I, th- I think this was either after high school, before uni, or maybe after a bachelor's degree but uh before a master's or something like that between after graduating at some level <laughs> he took some time and visited our very own canada much like agatha christie did <laughs> did she i don't i don't not i do not recall <laughs> yeah she she did it on a british empire promotional tour um but he just did it for fun um at least that's what i i assume he went to the u.s as well but we don't really care that much about that anyway so then (laughs) (laughs) he spent some time i'm not sure when this was i think it was shortly after his trip to north america apparently kazuo ishiguro spent time being an employee at balmoral castle which you might recognize as be having been the Scottish residence of um, the late Queen Elizabeth II, and I guess, I guess the King King Charles has it. I assume he he inherited that. I think it was Queen Elizabeth's like one of her favorite residences, and I guess Kazuo Ishiguro worked on the grounds as a guy. <laughs> I think the position was called a grouse beater. So I guess his job was to like flush out grouses so that they could be shot by i guess the queen and her family and guests i don't know Wait, if he so met the, i don't know if he, he was, met the he queen was, he was part of like the royal gardening uh kind crew? of kind of and i mean if he was i mean grouse beater at balmoral castle is something i've seen in several sources so it must That's be true very interesting which means which kind of has some bearing on remains of the day in a sense yeah. he was literally maybe, maybe that's where he got some um insight into you know like the high uh the high standard kind of service of, yeah like, i mean he was essentially he was estate. he was a servant at you know a great house the one of the greatest in the land you might say probably one of the few that was left in his time uh which is it's interesting to think about. I had yeah. no idea well, that this was true about him before before about two hours ago. <laughs> and out of all the facts I learned about him, none of them were really surprising except that one. Like, yeah, that is he worked surprising. at Balmoral Castle. Did he meet the queen? I mean, he must have when he was knighted, but did he meet I don't, I the don't queen? I don't think that the queen would, would bother to meet her groundskeeper people yeah i mean i don't mean like they sat down and talked for a long time but was he like i flushed out some gross your majesty (laughs) go shoot them (laughs) you know or like did that happen i don't know i'm not going to make any strong claims one way or the other because i don't know enough about the situation but it's possible it's very possible 
Um, and then besides that, you know, he went to university, uh, University of Kent, I do believe. Um, and he got, you know, a BA in English and philosophy, big surprise. And I think his first novel, um, was actually his master's thesis. Well, I was just talking to you about this. I was saying, it's kind of crazy how in your program, programs like that, your thesis can just be a novel. That's crazy. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, yeah, I guess that would be crazy to someone who is in STEM. Yeah, but uh, that they, they don't need to know any more about me, but uh, yeah, that seems <laughs> crazy. Um, so yeah, um, this, this thesis would eventually sort of be the, I guess, like the manuscript probably for his first novel, which was called A Pale View of Hills, which is from 1982, I do believe. Um, and this book, and I think his second book as well, were both set in Japan, the country where he was born, but a country which he had not visited since he moved at this point in time. Um, and then his third book, which we're talking about today, 1988's Remains of the Day, would be a book that was very much involved in sort of deconstructing classic archetypes about his adopted homeland uh england um besides that i mean he just kept on publishing sort of banger after banger you know (laughs) when we were orphans in 2000s well regarded never let me go 2005 yeah Um, i've read both of those as well but i think remains was sort of his breakout novel that made him really well known it wasn't just his breakout novel. I think it remains kind of his legacy remains. in terms of... Uh, yes. Um, yeah, I think that that's the book that he's kind of the most celebrated for. Um, the others are more obscure as far Never as Never Let know. Me Go is pretty well known. Yeah, I think he also he also did The Buried Giant and um, Clara and the Sun, which came out That's more his recently. most recent one, right? Yeah, I just finished that one. It was enjoyable as well. You and, wanted to uh, do that one. I did want to do that one because I've read this one before. I had no interest in that do, book, though. You know what? This one is definitely, I think, like, this is the one that people f- fell in love with, and that's for a good reason. Um, so... Yeah, this one yeah. I was actually interested in reading, so I more or less forced you to read it for the fourth time. Well, I think it was the third time. I think third time? I like I don't know. I'm not 100% sure like how many times I've read this book, but I will say that this one was good to read because um, now you can finally see uh, with your own hand eyes with your own hands. Oh my god. See with your own hands. <laughs> you need to, Maybe the you guy need from Labyrinth. This. Maybe the guy from Labyrinth sees with his own but hands, but you can you can finally see Pan, um, no, Pan's Labyrinth, not Labyrinth. The um the <laughs> That's connection, cut. your connection to Stevens. How Stevens is essentially just you, but Okay, yes, okay. We have to talk about Okay, we have to talk about time. this. So you yeah, so you said I think you said this even before we decided we were going to do this podcast about this book. I think you said this, right? You said yeah. that you essentially said that Stevens, the the main character of this of Remains of the Day, reminded you a lot of me. Yes. And I think that any viewer or listener rather 
um, who has stuck with us for the last three episodes would probably agree. That's a very hypothetical (laughs) sort of person. No, it's a tall order. But uh, if there is such a person, I think that they would agree that you and Mr. Stevens, the butler, share many characteristics. What would you say <laughs> the, the characteristics are? Well, let's get into that when, as, we, okay. as we unpack this book. I'm sure wow. this subject will reoccur naturally. Okay. Yeah, so just going into this episode, when I started this book, I was like, oh, God damn it, I'm going to prove her wrong. I'm not Mr. Stevens. <laughs> And then, you know... (laughs) Yeah, and then the truth caught up with you. Yeah, it's maybe maybe a little more true than I'd like it to be, but (laughs) I don't think it's fully there, obviously, but... Yeah, no, you haven't haven't wasted your profession and your personal life yet. That's true. That's coming later. Well, when when I pick the house I serve as butler in, then... I, I don't want to pick Darlington Hall. Let's put it that way. No. Yeah. Okay, so I think that's pretty much it in terms of Yeah, I think life. you've covered everything. Except for, um, you know, like some preliminary information about Remains of the Day that, you know, I remember reading this about Remains of the Day. I don't know when I last read this or if it's since been disproven, but... Um, Oh, yeah. I was telling you earlier that Kazuo Ishiguro apparently wrote the first draft of this in like two days in this Which is kind crazy of insane. burst of creativity. and um, By hand, you said also. I, I know I said by hand, but now that I say it, I'm, I'm worried that I'm just misremembering. You're not going to own yeah, that. I think, I think that he wrote it by hand over two days of just like this crazy burst of productivity and inspiration because he and his wife had decided that he was uh, suffering from writer's block or something. So he just went for it, you know, with this new thing. His wife was like, you better write a book right now. (laughs) Stop whining. (laughs) Yeah. You better pay these bills with your creative writing. Yeah, yeah. Um, Pale view of the hills isn't going to pay the bills, you know. <laughs> his wife is a social worker, so I doubt that that was, you know, very lucrative for them as well. Wow, Although roasting now, social workers. I bet that they're they're ha- they're pretty happy. Oh yeah, they must be super rich. I mean, I don't know what super rich. I mean, I don't know how much. I think the back of my cover says that that the book sold like twenty million copies or something. Oh. No, sorry, not 20 million. Sorry, 1 million copies, which then I did the mental math and was like, <laughs> that must million. be $20 million, roughly, that it made. Um, how much is yeah, a book? Like how $20, much, 30 How dollars? much does he see of that, though? I'm not sure. Even uh, if it's half. <laughs> you, know what's, you know what's actually really funny? Even if I, it's a third. <laughs> I, was having, I was having a debate with... I was having a discussion with someone... And um, they asked me to, like, estimate how much money Stephanie Myers, the author of the Twilight series... Oh, so um, much. ...had made. And because I'm in creative writing and my, I guess, expectations are so low and I'm so, like, <laughs> cynical about the whole, like, industry, I estimated that she made $1 million. No, no, that isn't true. <laughs> and then we looked it up and it was, like... 
Yeah. A, a ridiculous amount. Because well, then she made money. She makes residuals off the movies probably as well. Also, and she wrote four books with like a few Each of them sold books. millions. I know. So yeah. I don't know what I was thinking, but um, yeah. None of them have Agatha Christie money, though. It was though. way off. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, none, yeah, no one's quite reached that level of success. But yeah, no, I mean, he must be a millionaire. Anyway, not that that's I too important. Know. He's got it. No, look, listen. <laughs> yeah, maybe <laughs> then right. Never Let Me right. Go was also a big hit, you know? Yeah, I guess it, it was turned into a movie. Yeah, and he probably makes royalties off that. Anyway, yeah, it's, it's well-earned, I think. Yeah, at least at least he um, is, you know, a good writer. Nice. Is that is that a pointed jab at Stephanie Meyer? No, 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 no. I just mean like it's better him than someone whose work did not resonate uh, with me on such a. You That's know, true. Twilight did resonate level. with you at a pretty like yeah. That was an important okay, book. So this is not about Twilight. This yeah, we'll save that for the Twilight episode. We should do a Twilight episode though, because I think I did a twenty-minute digression on Twilight when we were discussing the Hunger Games. So I don't think it was that bad, but it was bad enough. Yeah, it was bad enough. It was bad enough. Okay, okay so shall so, we? Shall we start on talking yes, about remains of the should. day now? It's almost been half an hour, and we haven't gotten to the book that this podcast is about. Just that's just that's actually that out there. It's the best time we've made, actually. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I know. We actually flew by the author spotlight, so yeah. Okay. Um, how do you want to start this book? What were your first impressions of this book? Because this was your first reading of it. So it was we had my two first very reading. different experiences. It's an inverse of last week's episode. <laughs> That's true. That's true. It is an inverse of last week's episode. Yeah. Right. Red Heart of Darkness a few times and it was your first time. Um, so, yeah, my first impression was that this was a very well executed book. It's um, one of the best uses, uses of like writing in a distinctive voice that I've seen yeah. in a long time. It's one of like, yeah, just the way that the book is so very much written from Stephen's perspective and it never deviates really like you never feel it slipping up uh, I thought that was great because I found that Stephen's voice was a nice one to to read I feel like <laughs> <laughs> maybe it was a bit familiar uh -oh. to you <laughs> <laughs> I wish honestly I couldn't I couldn't do the same. I couldn't write a book as well as this but yeah, no, it was a pleasant enough voice to read a story through. Uh, I think that the structure was interesting, and it was sort of flawlessly done. I loved the idea of yeah. you've got the parallel stories of you follow Stevens on his journey, his motoring holiday across the West Country, and then he has these recollections. And it's just so smoothly done. Like, you could feel yes. like... It could be like jarring if that kept happening, if it was handled less well, but mm -hmm. everything sort of flowed so smoothly. I could appreciate that a lot. You almost didn't notice the transitions. Like he would, the, the amount of skipping back and forth, like into the past, back to the present, um, could be so disorienting, like you said, but. It really wasn't at all. The way that he, yeah, the way that he navigates it is so seamless. Um, you don't even really notice the transitions because it's almost like this 
continuous um, stream of thought that just yeah, it's it's very sort of stream right of consciousness like yeah, and usually the memory he'll say like I was having this thought and he he tells you the thoughts he was having and he said and this reminds me of a certain memory that I had and you can yeah. you can always at the end of the memory you always go yeah okay I understand why what the theme what the linking. Yeah theme was between the present and the past there or or he would he would um you know say oh she had she always did this with the exception of that one time yeah and she right. didn't and this reaction surprised me and then you segue into that reaction as well i also thought so. in terms of while well, we're still in first impressions that uh it was uh had a delightful melancholy quality to it uh that was very yeah, it was just delightfully done. Nice yeah. and sad in a good way, you know? But sad but funny. Like, that was yeah. the thing that's, that I think makes it so enjoyable coming back to it again and again is it's, um, I think I read, like, in the blurbs at the beginning, but it's it's a comedy of manners, which it yeah. totally is. There's so many lighthearted moments of um, hilarity because his his worldview is so incompatible with certain things that he tries to do like for example bantering and um like his his situation of being able to not really relate to other people always ends up being really hilarious or really tragic or sometimes both and he tries so, to make his lame jokes with, his, his with jokes mr faraday are his jokes were hilarious also with the townspeople that, that one was so you know what i'll say the one with mr faraday was kind of okay but no it was not i actually remember what it is because it was so bad he said yeah. a variation of the cock crow no, no that was doubt. the one that was the one with the townspeople no 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 the, oh was it because they're like they're saying oh, like oh the innkeeper's right. wife is always you're right too the loud. first one he said something like oh it sounds more like swallows, they're birds of more the swallows than crows <laughs> yes. because of the migratory aspect yeah because yeah the worst joke ever. <laughs> that one's better that one's better than the no, the second no they're both terrible <laughs> they are both they're lame both terrible they are both quite unfunny and lame but the first one was less than the second one anyway they don't even like they don't even make sense. Like if you the were just a normal is, person hearing it, you don't even know what he's saying. Like it's, the second it's not one is that the worst. it's not funny. It, they don't even know it's a joke. Yeah, Faraday and the towns guys just don't even know he's trying to make a joke. Yeah, and and yeah. yet it can pivot from that to such a like heartbreaking, tragic, uh, you know, situation or memory. And it's, it's from the both. same fundamental, you know, uh, misunderstanding that he has about people. So get yourself a book that can do both. Yeah, for sure. Well, this and you know, this is very um, maybe this more so than the others. But I've I've read a few of Ishigoro's books, and I feel like he always, you know, sadness, regret, memory obsolescence these are things that he seems really interested in and he always returns to you know thematically in his books they're all definitely argue, on display in this one yeah yeah that this one does it the most or it just elicits the most you know pathos from from the reader yeah i think that's true i can't speak to about the other books but 
sadness, obsolescence, and regret would definitely be some of the three main emotions that you're made to feel uh, on on Steven's behalf it's, during it's the course even, of the book. I, I think the thing that also makes it so effective for me is it's not even those things in themselves. It's those things filtered through the um, narrator, his unreliable voice, and you know, you're so firmly situated in his head yeah. um, that it's like you really have such a strong sense of who he is, how his thoughts work, what his values are. Um, it, it's like one of the more interior books that I've that I've ever read. Definitely, like you just really you're trapped in his. Um, voice and his perception of things and um, even his recollection of things he he can't um, tell the full story but it's his omissions that you know really are the story but Kazuo Ishiguro does it in such a way that you you pick up on all of those while still getting the full extent of the character's voice at the same time I was going to say just before we we continue on, just to briefly ground the listeners, the basic story. Oh, that's right. We, we do. We <laughs> will come back. I think to all of those things you brought up because it's it's important and uh, interesting. But just the basic story follows yes. our the main character. If you haven't read this yet, which you should. Come on. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> I feel if like you haven't, there's no way that someone would have, would have stuck with us these for episodes, 30 minutes. These episodes are very much for people who have read the book, but yes. just to remind you, um, the, the plot follows Mr. Stevens. He's a butler at Darlington Hall, which is this grand English country house, formerly belonged to an English uh, lord, Lord Darlington. In the present, he's employed by an American millionaire mr faraday and he uh because his his boss says he should probably take a holiday he decides to go on a holiday uh, visit the west country in england and you know the what he tells us is that the main reason he wants to do it is so that he could meet up with a former staff member of theirs miss kenton who had been the housekeeper when he was the butler back in the old days when they had tons and tons of servants under lord darlington um, she's retired and married, but he wants to see if maybe she might want to return back to service at Darlington Hall because she wrote him a letter that has some passages that seem a bit nostalgic, and he wants to see if maybe he can convince her to come back. And as he goes on his holiday through the West Country, he has various encounters with people and various... This, these sort of trigger various reminiscences of his time back in the old days at Darlington Hall when Lord Darlington was still there. Uh, that's basically the plot. We'll get into the details yeah. later. <laughs> but it, through these reminiscences, um, more pieces come together about what happened that he's not serving Lord Darlington anymore and why uh, Miss Kenton does not work there anymore. Yeah, and um, those effects that might have had, how that might have affected his life and and the way that he views his life now as an older gentleman. Yeah, not gentleman, his, man. Not gentle manservant. Yeah, manservant. It's, it's these reflections on his life um, that yeah that make him sort of recon reconsider what his life yeah. has meant 
which is sort of the core of the book, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, okay, so now we can get into more of the specifics, I guess. Um, there's a lot of what you said to unpack. Um, let's, but I, I'm interested in what you said about Stevens being an unreliable narrator. Um, so, okay. so this can be brought up for almost any first person book, this line of inquiry, but mm-hmm. I'd like you to just, yeah, I'm interested cause I actually hadn't thought of it that much. Uh, really? I hadn't, no, cause on the, on my first reading, um, right, right. I didn't stop to think so much that okay. about what yeah. might be unreliable, but which, um, yeah, which moments do you think show this tendency of uh, of Stevens, like, and okay. what do you think is being omitted? So I think that, um, okay, yeah, let's start with the omissions. So I, f- I feel like um, when you're reading, there are so many moments that are significant to the story that you have to um, just uh, infer what Stevens is doing because he does not describe his reaction to something, what he thought about it, how he reacted, you know, even just um, in his like general behavior. He's very spare he, on describing himself yeah, he's, personally. Yeah, he's very spare. And, and sometimes, you know, with other characters, he's not. But for himself, he always leaves out um, how he uh, receives something, especially if it's something personal to him or upsetting to him. Oh, I can so, think of an example now, actually, that, yeah, yeah. that's quite important. Go ahead. It's, yeah. um, it's when it's at the big uh, sort of conference. So Lord Darlington holds these sort of conferences where he invites prominent, you know, gentlemen and ladies from foreign countries, let's say Germany mostly in the 1930s. So you can see where this is kind of going <laughs> in the late 20s and early 1930s. Um and at one of these, uh, it's the first sort of big one. Stephen's dad, Stephen Senior, uh, is working at the house. He's old, very old at this point, so he's sort of a the under butler. But you know, his dad had been a butler as well um, for for many years, and he's sort of Stephen's role model, even though he wouldn't quite say it as such. Um, and so during this conference, his dad. Uh, is very ill he has a stroke essentially and he's upstairs in bed sort of convalescing uh, but Stevens of course has to be at the conference right he's got a this this important event with he's all these prominent all these important distinguished distinguished people yeah from various France Germany all that sort of stuff America so meanwhile his father is essentially dying upstairs and I think it was shortly after he learns that actually his father has died in the course of the night he's serving drinks to people and lord darlington's godson um mr cardinal uh reginald isn't it him or or is it lord yep. darlington who says yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, he says it's he says oh, are you all right are you aren't you and then doesn't he even say uh you look a little unwell and then doesn't he even say at the end like why are you are you crying yeah, he. I think that they they start off by talking about, um, like there was this, you know, how I was talking before about oh, it's either hilarious or it's tragic. Well, they were, yeah, they were kind of talking about. Stevens was trying to give him a sex talk earlier, <laughs> yes, you know, in the day, and so the the son is kind of trying to um, 
without realizing it's a sex talk, he's trying to bring up that topic again. Yes. Um, and then in the middle of him doing I that... I found the passage, actually, yes. Oh, okay, yeah. You should... Yeah, you might as well just read it then. Yes, yeah, so, so this is the m- moment I was talking about. This is right after his father's died, and he's in a room serving port to these fancy guys. Uh, and he's mostly talking with um, Mr. Cardinal, who is, again, Stephen, uh, Lord Darlington's godson and sort of a frequent visitor. Um, yes, so he, he, he says, I proceeded to serve port to some of the other guests. There was a loud burst of laughter behind me, and I heard the Belgian clergyman exclaim, That is really a heretical, positively heretical, then laugh loudly himself. I felt something touch my elbow and turned to find Lord Darlington. Stevens, are you all right? Yes, sir, perfectly. You look as though you're crying. I laughed and, taking out a handkerchief, quickly wiped my face. Very sorry, sir, the strains of a hard day. So that, yeah, it was Lord Darlington. So he, he he doesn't even say... Mm-hmm. I was crying. He, he It's almost like... It's just you, through dialogue. It's just through someone else speaking to him that the reader almost, even gets the clue that he's upset. But I, I almost took it that in at the moment, he himself didn't even realize that he yeah. was crying. That that could definitely be the case. And um, there's, there's a few moments like that where... Um, in fact, I think even at the end, um, he, when he truly comes to that revelation about himself and his life having been, you know, a waste. Um, it's a very similar it's, it's delivery, It's just actually. dialogue. Yeah, it's just dialogue. And the other character says, oh, um, are you okay? Here, Sorry, you mate. Use you want to... <laughs> he offers yeah. him a handkerchief. I only, he's like, I only a sneezed on it once. A handkerchief that's been used. Yeah, a gross <laughs> like a, used handkerchief. He's like, I only sneezed on this once this morning. <laughs> you want to, mate? Yeah, so... It's true. Um, it's it's a very similar way that it's than that. It's like he doesn't say, I was crying. It's just through the dialogue that and you... It's, yeah. It's not, it's not just negative moments where he does that. It's also um, anything where I think his body betrays some sort of reaction that is that he would consider unprofessional or that he thinks... Or undignified, you know, maybe. Undignified, something that portrays his personal self rather than his professional self. I think he always omits because there was another time when uh, they were describing Stevens and Miss Kenton... Um, having their like cocoa chats together after the workday and she was kind of teasing him and she was saying like oh what's that guilty smile on your face Mm, why are you smiling like that he never gave any indication that he was smiling Um, you you can only really intuit his reactions to her through what she's about hiring Lisa yeah that's about hiring Lisa yeah. Yeah, and, and in fact even his decision not to hire pretty girls is only observed through a different character. You don't actually know what any of his views are. Yeah. But, it's true. You know, they become clear through other people. Uh, but particularly Miss Kenton, um, being able to kind of see through him and call him on his BS. Which she it, does many, many times throughout It's the true. Book. That's sort of the heart of the <laughs> relationship really. Yeah. Uh but um, I was going to say, I think that the overall theme is that I don't think Stevens ever, he never articulates explicitly it, his own personal feelings about anything. 
Yeah. That's because I think he would consider that either not his place to do or undignified or some combination of the two because a big part of this book is that he sort of lives his life by this this unofficial code um, of what it means to be, you know, aspiring to be a great butler. He returns to this theme over and over again, and the central part of it is to maintain an air of dignity, which, in the way he describes it, usually amounts to emotional restraint and not letting your emotions show, essentially, I, and I, oh. maintaining composure at all times. I have so many quotes on this, but... Yeah, I think I think he mentions I think he mentions at some point. I'm not going to find it because it's going to take too long. But um, there's a part where he he says this many times, uh, or like he touches on that subject many times. But I think um, on page 169, he he talks about having to um, inhabit the role fully, the role of a butler. Like there is no room to add your own personal. you know, being or views or values or anything like that. Into and the one time that you're allowed to, to not wear the mask is when you're completely alone. But only then. And that's another, that is another tragic thing about him is that he never allows himself to lower the mask, even when he's with Miss Kenton, who is essentially begging him to lower it at various points throughout the book. Yeah. And who really, you know, would be like she she needed him to in like many crucial moments and he decided again and again not to yeah I'm particularly thinking about when her aunt died that's the worst yeah he that really professionally is. negged her instead of <laughs> offering his condolences which he tells us explicitly he was thought the about only it. thing he wanted to do he wanted to make her feel better and he thought the way to do that was to tell her about all the ways that her housekeeping True. was not up to her usual standards. True, that's baffling. That that <laughs> is <baffling>. really <laughs> that part because he tells us he was thinking about coming in, knocking, and saying, "Oh, I forgot to say, you know, offer my condolences," but he doesn't. And then yeah. he does go in and, yeah, he starts criticizing, yeah, yeah. yeah negging her, essentially, so as you, you said. So you really get the sense of how hard it is, though, for him to open up or to face any kind of, you know, like accountability for his feelings or his desires. He he really keeps a tight lid on it. Even as a narrator to us, he, like, almost never articulates any kind of desire on his part that's not professional. And you get that in the scene where his, the last time he speaks with his father as well, where his father says, you know, oh, you know, I could have been a better, I, I suppose I wasn't a very good father to you, but but I'm proud of you, you know. He's mm-hmm. trying to achieve some sort of closure, but Stevens is just like, oh, we'll talk about this in the morning, mm-hmm. you know. He can't mm-hmm. face he can't face the situation for yeah. what it is. And and that's when other people, other characters are making themselves available to him and, and kind of asking him to do the same for them. He's not even in a professional environment in that moment. He's just with them one on one. And but yeah. he's still it's so difficult for him to kind of remove the um, you know, the persona that he's inhabiting or like the role that he's inhabiting that he he can't do it. And I think those are kind of the crucial things that lead to the the situation of, of in the end of him being alone and everyone having moved on from him and him having all these regrets in his life and nothing to kind of show for it. 
that's um, that's the tragedy of it like it's his yeah. very own principles and sort of code of of conduct that he dedicated his life to this the code of dignity restraint and uh you know being uh trying to be a great butler service and all these sort of things which i think on their own and tempered moderately you know and not to the exclusion of being emotionally open and honest are not bad values in and of themselves themselves rather but the fact that he commits himself to these things at the expense of everything else in it that he might possibly have had that's the tragedy that he can't he may, he he essentially chooses dignity service restraint over the possibility of having had a life of his own essentially well i, I think another thing that's tragic about it is his definition of dignity is something that you know, it was a product of its time almost, and the world and the standard of that has passed him by by the time that the novel, you know, the setting that he's in now, people don't care for that definition of dignity. And, you know, the other townspeople directly kind of contradict his worldview about it when they say, you know, the value or the definition of dignity is to stand up for what you believe in, even if you're this little person who isn't some great lord or politician. That's what defines uh, someone who has retained their dignity. And that's like a direct challenge to the way he's lived his entire life. It's almost Um, like the exact opposite because... uh, it's almost as if to say to have opinions, to have views, and to and to express them in a forthright manner is the definition of dignity, which is the ex- almost the exact opposite yeah. of Stephen's definition, which is to restrain yourself in every in everything. Well, that's that's also what what's so upsetting is that his definition of dignity also takes pretty much an equal amount of work like he it it takes more work arguably like he has um strived for his definition of perfection and professionalism and he's kind of wasted his life doing it but it's it's taken a lifetime's worth of effort um so the fact that he put so much into it and it ended up being misguided or not valued um, eventually is so sad. <laughs> and yeah, it's, it's really it's tragic. The, the, him resisting that truth about himself um, and where you can kind of sense the tension of him coming close to that truth and then not really being able to face it is also... Those are like some of the most gutting um, passages in the book, I think, is when he when he's kind of forced to confront what really became of Lord Darlington. And, um, you know, the whole time he kind of in- insists, like, oh, Lord Darlington's this great guy, and he was just misle- misled, but, yeah. um, you know, he, 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 he never, he was never anti-Semitic. What's this except nonsense for, about except that? Except for that one time. <laughs> that one time where he was. <laughs> that was so perplexing. Like when he when he was like, "Oh, this nonsense about him being anti-Semitic," and then maybe like the next page, he says, he "Well, except maybe about... the this one instance, <laughs> this this one of like four instances <laughs> that he went yeah. on to describe." Yeah. But um, yeah, I I think that um, he the the fact that he is so. You know, it's a point of pride almost. Like he t- he talks 
repeatedly about his sense of triumph whenever he kind of represses his feelings about some sort of really distressing event in order right, to like serve Right, like on the night his people. father died and he kept serving the port, he said he felt a sense of triumph about that. Yeah, and and he said the same thing, I think, um, the day that he found out that Miss Kenton was said yes to this other man's proposal, which was also the same day that um, Mr. Cardinal's son, uh, also Mr. Cardinal, was telling him about all these atrocities that Lord Darlington was pretty much aiding and abetting and, and right. even facilitating, he uh, he felt the sense of pride at the end of the night that he had stayed by his post and served these people despite, yeah. you know, all of his, you know, mental turmoil. Um, the idea that, yeah, that you would, despite the fact that you are facing uh, a very difficult moment in your personal life carry on as if you weren't and continue to yeah continue to serve and be uh be carry on your job as a as a servant exactly as if nothing was going on at all yeah like it's it's troubling because it kind of implies that he you know like the the worse it is for him the better of a job he's doing by the harder it, it is the harder yeah, it is the harder to do. it is yeah so that was unfortunate when you can kind of saw his flawed worldview like playing out and and kind of how he was um setting the the stage for what would become like you know his his regrets in life <laughs> but um yeah he also like he doesn't even describe he's so kind of disconnected from his himself as a person um, and like a someone with his own feelings and his own desires and his own you know thoughts that he even the language the extremely polite language that he uses to describe everything um, you know my oh I, I moved my person over or like one feels oneself has let oneself down you yeah. know he's talking <laughs> about himself in both cases but it's so removed um, he like really tries to separate like his physical body and like his uh, the fact that he's a human being from the fact that he is this butler. Um, so that distancing um, or like over proprietary, you know, language, um, the fact that that was used pretty much throughout the whole book. Yeah, it's it's what gave it such that, yeah, like it gave it such a vivid um, tone and sense of character. You really like were one with that character and really felt like you were in his head. That's what I think I meant when I said that it was a, one of the best examples of like using a distinct voice that I'd heard in my first impression sort of yeah. breakdown. That's what I would, I think it's what you said. Yeah, that. and but that's also how, you know, you get so familiar with it that you learn to kind of read between the lines. Yes, um, yeah, How exactly. he presents information. That's true. No, it's exactly true. I think... I think that um, you could say the whole time, like, uh, it's interesting that he holds up his father as, as sort of his role model because his father was presumably, so he's from an older generation, so there's differences between them. His father doesn't have quite the command of language you were just talking about 
where everything is so perfectly uh every sentence is so perfectly constructed and he doesn't you know his father even has a bit of a regional accent it's we're implied we're implied it's implied um uh, he's more old-fashioned in that way but the idea that the that I, those ideas of sort of dignity and restraint and um, self-sacrifice are pretty present in his father, and you can see that that's where he picked them up. It's almost like that's the one way that he that he was able to connect with him. Because like if his father was like him, right, he must have been a fairly distant. <laughs> yeah, well, you <laughs> definitely a fairly get that distant sense. Parent, even, but even maybe the, like the the interactions between them. And, and even Stevens himself said, like, for reasons I didn't understand, we didn't even really speak anymore, even though we served the same house. Like, yeah. you really, you do get the sense that he was a distant father and that he was devoted to his own role as a butler. I think he, the father also says at some point, like, oh, I've, I've served at the table every day for the for last 50, 50 years. years. Yeah. Yeah. So. so it's almost like you could see maybe Stephen's character was molded mm-hmm. in a in a way to try and win his father's respect and pride, possibly, one might say. You could see how that might have happened. Maybe in the prequel we'll hear about this. <laughs> but even even though <laughs> Young um... Young Stevens <laughs> <laughs> oh my god like young sheldon I, okay <laughs> but like even even though you know he, eventually he gets what i guess he would have wanted back then if, if he if he was so inspired or like his dad instilled these um values into him um and he just wanted to make him proud like his father says to him at one point he does you've been, yeah. a, you've been a good son i'm proud of you and he can't even be in the moment in that moment to connect it's worked, with him it's worked too well almost it's worked too well yeah and isn't that so isn't that wasn't that so upsetting that's the tragedy of it that's the tragedy of it because that's the sense of the tragic like he's done this very possibly to win the respect of his father and he's got it but he was so good at it yeah that he can't reciprocate at the moment where he finally got got it mm-hmm. and and also like just the way that they that the relationship between him and his father um was portrayed like it was so strange like the the way that his dad was cold to him almost yeah. and spoke to him coldly and didn't well because ever... they mostly we mostly see them interact while they're both on duty you know they're both on duty at the, and and he can't I think that is what it is because I think they're both people who equally take this they live by the same code which is you know if you're if you're on duty at Darlington Hall if you're in if you're in the middle of serving if your son comes by you can't you know be particularly warm to him just cuz he's your son okay, you are the butler I, I wish I had you, the quote now you're but the under butler No I think his dad I think his dad was unnecessarily harsh and hostile to him though like okay. i don't think stevens reflected that I, I just found it actually coincidentally i just opened this book on that page i don't okay. even know how no, that let's happened. hear let's hear about but, it okay so just listen to this interaction between them when stevens has to tell his dad that he has to like take a you know uh fewer responsibilities now that he's aging a bit oh yes okay. right so so stephen says um 
he, so he goes up to his father's room, which is really tiny and dark. Um, and this is the scene. Ah, I said, and gave a short laugh. I might have known father would be up and ready for the day. I've been up for the last three hours, he said, looking me up and down rather coldly. Right. I hope father is not being kept awake by his arthritis troubles. I get all the sleep I need. (laughs) (laughs) Like the coldest answers. Okay. And then later he says, I've come here to relate something to you, father. Then relate it briefly and concisely. I haven't all morning to listen to you chatter. So mean. <laughs> well, this was this. To be fair, this was after his big fall, so he might be feeling a bit, a bit you know, emasculated. Uh, or yeah, he's in a he's know, in a tough insecure. spot. He might be lashing oh. out more than he normally would. But no, I think but the the rude. idea, the characterization of him as cold, of Mister Stevens Senior as a cold man, is entirely fair. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's it's a learned behavior. So his son got it from him. I think you can tell. I guess, I guess so, but I or at least I, he learned to. But he explicitly says that when he's talking about the, you know, that the cornerstone of what makes a great butler is dignity, and he says, "Well, one example of someone who I think displayed dignity was my own father." You know, early on in the book, Stephen says that. So I think that's pretty clear that that's where he sort of learned his. It was through emulating his dad that he largely began to build his persona. You know, I actually think it was interesting that we never really learned anything about Stephen's mom. See, I don't think she's um, even mentioned once. Yeah, she, like, did she hardly. die? Did she leave? I mean, we don't know anything about her. It's actually even surprising that, you know, if we're to believe that Stephen's father was as devoted to his job as Stephen's is, then why do you even have a kid? Stevens didn't. I mean, That's true. It's an interesting difference. Kids. He had two kids, so he must have been married. Right. No, I think... Oh, yeah. Does he have a brother? I actually don't remember that. He, he had a brother who died. Remember? Oh, His yes. Died. Yes. Early, he died before like he was born. And then he was he, a and young then he man. Just, he had to serve yes. the military guy who was... Who was uh, leading in the battle where he did, where his oldest son died. I think, yeah, yeah who, who sent the son, you know, who, who he was... Essentially like sent him to die, yeah. guy who sent him to die. Yeah. For some sort of, quote, un-British... Uh, yeah attack or something on a in village the, in the boer war yeah exactly <laughs> yeah right now i remember yes yes I, I do remember that but i mean it's right and it's a very similar notion like that steven's father the what stevens considers his greatest success was repressing his you know likely feelings of like hatred and anger towards <laughs> this man who's responsible for his son's death to provide him with excellent service as a servant. Mm-hmm. That's that's the height of uh, achievement uh, in Stephen's worldview. But yeah, and well, I suppose the real, <laughs> I, I felt, <laughs> I wanted to read this bit because there's that and then there's, there's, there's another possible height of achievement in the Stephen's worldview. I think you know what I'm talking <laughs> about. <laughs> so- Oh, I so, do. So of course, so you know after all this you might be thinking ishmael how can you bear to be compared to (laughs) stevens and what why aren't you like vigorously challenging this notion i think that like i said i I don't think i'm nearly quite so far gone as he is but (laughs) 
I did admit, while reading the book, Stevens gives another example of what he considers to be a sort of exemplary, dem- an exemplary demonstration of dignity of the kind he aspires to. And I'll admit that when I read this part of the book, I found myself agreeing and thinking, yeah, that is actually pretty, <laughs> that's pretty admirable behavior. So I'm going to proceed to read this part of the story now. It's a story that Stephen's father told about supposedly another butler and how he conducted himself in a difficult, difficult situation. The story, he says, was an apparently true one concerning a certain butler who had traveled with his employer to India and served there for many years, maintaining amongst the native staff the same high standards as he had commanded in England. It's a bit of casual racism, but that's okay. Let's move past that. One afternoon, evidently, this butler had entered the dining room to make sure all was well for dinner, when he noticed a tiger languishing beneath the dining table. The butler had left the dining room quietly, taking care to close the doors behind him, and proceeded calmly to the drawing room where his employer was taking tea with a number of visitors. There he attracted his employer's attention with a polite cough, then whispered in the latter's ear, I'm very sorry, sir, but there appears to be a tiger in the dining room. Perhaps you will permit the twelve boars to be used? And according to legend, a few minutes later, the employer and his guests heard three gunshots when the butler reappeared in the drawing room some time afterwards to refresh the teapots. The employer had inquired if all was well. Perfectly fine, thank you, sir, came the reply. Dinner will be served at the usual time, and I am pleased to say there will be no discernible traces left of the recent occurrence by that time. (laughs) I thought that... (laughs) I couldn't help but think, yeah, that butler was quite a formidable individual, worthy of some respect, if he existed at all. Every everyone would concede that that is something worthy of respect. I think y- for you, if you were a butler or even just a person, I think you would use that sentence. <laughs> I think that is how you speak. <laughs> yeah, I think a big part of your, I would I, I would hope a big part of your comparing me to Stevens is just sort of the way we carry ourselves. Yeah, well, I the imagine. way that the way that you are like overly polite maybe such as the thing that you were talking about before this recorded <laughs> what oh yeah, come on this is getting cut has to cut now. <laughs> no, that is definitely god damn it. a stevens-esque quality <laughs> okay <laughs> and yeah stevens like being so um mortified and uncomfortable that evening when everyone thought he was like a lord or something but right. he didn't want to. He didn't want to disrupt, uh, you know, the the what they thought because that would already be so uncomfortable socially that he just let it continue. Yeah, the idea that you'd be so embarrassed that you just sort of let go people with it. go with it for like an hour. Yeah, I could I could relate. I was like, ooh, that's yeah. very cringeworthy. You know but, what? I could relate to that too, though. Yeah, I could I yeah. could relate to that. Yeah, but, it's true. That's a great scene as well. Um, it's, uh, cause it's, it's, it sort of demonstrates like it's an interesting parallel because it's when he's, it's when he's, um, reached a sort of small town in the West country, uh, almost, uh, when he's almost reached where Miss Kenton's now living. Um, and he ha- sort of his car breaks down and he has to stay basically with some, 
sort of local people for the night like one of the there's no inns or anything so he just sort of has to board with this older couple in this small village and the sort of working class sort of rural people there see him you know in his nice suit with his ford car and speaking with like the sort of posh accent that he does and sort of they assume that he must be some sort of gentleman you know some high uh high-born sort of duke or lord or something or at least uh at least a gentleman of some renown uh and he sort of eventually yeah he's like, sitting there he's super embarrassed about it but then he sort of starts to go with it I he know. does say i know isn't that interesting he actually plays into it a little bit and he says oh i have no idea what compelled me to say this but yeah. then he did say um that he was in like foreign policy or something yeah yeah exactly first he says things without technically lying like yeah i did meet churchill and anthony eden Mm -hmm. it's probably true like he probably served them port at some point and he said like oh it was only you know i i it's not that i knew them very well it was just kind of uh you know in passing or whatever that's still true enough but (laughs) he basically does encourage them to to think of him as a as a gentleman when he's not it's an interesting point. It's it's almost like a chance to to be someone else. Well, I think I think not only that, but it was a chance for him to kind of um, take credit for um, this feeling of satisfaction that he had that he was contributing to the world stage somehow. Which is a theme he comes back to, like right. Yeah, he's yeah. like Lord Darlington hosts all these international conferences, and he's like me being there. Uh, as a servant, you know, in my small way, contributed to great events by yeah. being present so at these. It was events. almost it was a, like a way for him to almost get the credit that he felt that he was due, um, but through you know them thinking something that wasn't true. But um, you know, that's a good the same read. Yeah, sense of achievement or validation would still follow. I think. That's a good read of that scene. Yeah, he's giving himself, he's letting himself get what he thinks is his his yeah. dessert, just desserts in terms of credit for one night. Uh, and also, like, um, it's an interesting point where, like, on the one hand, he comes across because of the way he's presenting himself. He allows himself to come across as, like, uh, a gentleman. Uh, he's in, he's an impressive figure to the sort of mm-hmm. you know working class small town guys in the West Country, but when you compare their situations, in reality, he's at like the very that. at the very well, it's almost like at the very least they're free, right? They have their own opinions, oh, they have oh, their okay. own farms, you know, presumably like they have their own, they they're free to express themselves as well, oh, and see. also more literally he's a servant and they are not they work for themselves maybe they aren't you know wealthy or grand people but they're free and they're free to express themselves as well so it's an interesting parallel there and it's brought home when 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 dr carlisle arrives and he can instantly tell you know oh my god that wasn't that seemed so i was like please don't say anything don't burst this bubble. But he wasn't. Doctor so Doctor Carlisle was a was a good sport about it. He, he ended up being a good sport about it, but I was worried at first because he was definitely onto him from the. He beginning. could tell right away. Yeah. You know, because he's genuinely a pasho, so he could tell instantly <laughs> that <laughs> Stevens wasn't. <laughs> 
Yeah. But there you um, go. We'll, we've we'll, lost. We've lost all our British listeners there? just there. Oh, that's right. Okay. So no, but what I was gonna say there when I was like, oh, they're the same though, was, um, you know, Stevens was inhabiting this role of being this, um, you know, like politician or like this high-ranking guy, but really. Um, his situation is is more similar to the people that he's talking to. He doesn't actually have any power politically. Yeah. Um, he he is more like a, you know, one of the common folk or whatever. Well, it's but interesting, the, like his stat, like his social status, right? In like yeah. the old old fashioned like class system in England, like is he is he higher or lower status, right? Because well, on the one hand, that's I think the problem for him is that he can't actually relate to people who are status wise closer to him because uh, he has to make himself presentable to the yeah. aristocrats that he spends all of his time serving yeah so he's like alien he alienates himself completely like just even the way he speaks the way that he looks and like presents himself um, he's, he seems to to a lower class person like one of them because that's mm-hmm. what they want that's what they want in their servants at least in their higher place servants but you're right. You're right. He's not, and he always refers to himself as sort of ordinary people like you and me. Um, it's a good point. Like, is yeah, he presents one way maybe, but the truth of it is that he's yeah, he's a pretty humble man. He's a servant. He's a manservant. I say, mm-hmm. you aren't so. You wouldn't think me terribly rude, <laughs> but are you some <laughs> sort of a manservant? I know. I, I that was that sounded so harsh, but. You know, it gave him a sense of relief to hear that. So I no, guess it I wasn't think, as I think offensive Car- as it sounds. I think Dr. Carlisle basically handled the situation as well as he could. Oh, I like Dr. Carlisle, except Me as for well. what did you think of the uh, tone of disgust that he took up at the end? Like, mm. do you think there was some wider commentary there? Or? So it's interesting. It was- I guess we're. It's yeah, yeah. Carlisle talks about how you know he was sort of like a socialist, wasn't he? And then. That's probably why he wanted to live and practice medicine in, in a sort of a lower a middle, like a working class sort of rural community, probably, it was because he wanted to be amongst the proletariat or something of that sort. Because I think he says, like, I came out here, I was such a like socialist. And then you get the sense he's become less of one over the years, maybe because being well, he, actually he's not impressed. He's not living impressed with, like, am- the people, actually living amongst working class people has disillusioned him possibly I, I think that he was he was like the thing that he was disgusted by was that you know really they they say that they want change but they just want to live a quiet life and they don't actually care that's right or, that they that know? they don't that they yeah you can imagine him the cla- the oldest story in the world the college educated middle <laughs> upper middle class socialist going to talk to genuine poor people like about the means of production <laughs> and then they're all like uh i don't actually care about that i just want to live my life you know with my family and <laughs> yeah maybe that maybe we'll get that in young dr carlisle the prequel i think that was interesting though because he did he he introduced another um another definition of um dignity you know to the conversation that they were having did before. dr carlisle because he asked yeah. stevens and stevens was like, like i think what it do you, what do you think of dignity or something like that and, stevens and, goes i think it's principally not taking one's clothes off in public doesn't he say yeah but i think that what the, does dr carlisle guy, say 
I think he said something like, "Oh, I thought socialism was dignity or okay, or something like that." Yeah, and you get you get the sense that he's a disillusioned former socialist. Yeah. I don't think we we don't know a lot concretely about him, but he seems like a nice enough guy, honestly. Actually, I I was um I was wondering about like the the kind of broader commentary about like the state of England or something like that right in this book that i felt went a little bit over my head maybe the first few times that i read this um you know yes I, even, so two even non-british in, people to talk about it <laughs> is what we really need to do well what, i mean like, just in the in the simple fact of um you know he, he there was a great english lord with a huge staff yeah darlington now, yeah in in the present which is not, of course not the present right now but in like in the, the 80s. 50s the, oh <laughs> the 50s yeah that's when the book takes place yeah yeah, yeah. i said 80s accidentally i hope you cut that um, in the 1980s you said tristan <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um there's a skeleton staff it's um an american businessman yeah has bought um, the hall yeah and he almost kept stevens on as like a a little perk, a little authentic English butler yeah. perk. He's like, he so this 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 really end. is an authentic old English country house, and you really are an authentic fancy old school English butler. I think yeah. he says something close to that. I think he even says like, oh, Stevens. I paid for a real English butler, so that's what I got, isn't it? Or yeah, something like yeah, that. you really like, are a real old fashioned like English fancy butler. I think you, yeah. I think close something close to that. He's like, you aren't know, just some waiter in a in a suit, <laughs> are yeah. you? Yeah. yeah, he does say that because. That was when Stevens um, denied first knowing lied. Lord, yeah. He outright lied about having served Lord Darlington, and that's also another moment where you have to read between the lines and, and see. Because he says to the reader, "I have no idea why I did this." Yeah, and it's like, of course you know why you did it's this. Because Lord or, Darlington has a pretty we know. Yeah, because yeah. he has a pretty terrible reputation in the present day. His reputation mm-hmm. was tarnished by all the stuff he did, basically. You know, which is, I don't know if we outright said it, that he basically was trying to persuade the British to not go to war with the Nazi Germany and, like, invited prominent Nazis over to his house. I mean, not really. I mean, none of this really happened. But in the context of the story, yeah, Lord Darlington, like, invited, you know, like, the German ambassador. So, of course, that that guy was a Nazi. He was real. Uh, Ribbentrop oh, was really? a real, he that, was a real guy. was a real guy? guy? Yeah, oh Ribbentrop God. is a real guy. Um, I think he was hanged for war crimes later on uh, oh for the war, God. actually. Um, Anthony um, Eden, the prime minister, or what the, about not, M. It, DuPont? I don't real? think I don't think DuPont was real. Anthony Eden and um, Neville. Well, I don't think they say Chamberlain by name, but they're real. They they were mentioned when he says the prime minister. That must have been Neville Chamberlain. We can assume. And um, there's a couple of other real people. Um, Lady Astor is mentioned. She was a British MP who was also sort of a Nazi sympathizer. Oh, my God. Uh, oh, Sir Oswald Mosley. He was real. A British oh sort of fascist really? guy. Yeah. He led a Wait, sort of... Wait, so the, what, the black shirts guy? Yeah. He led sort of a, a sort of a fascist party in, in Britain. He didn't do too well, but he was a pretty notorious guy, <laughs> obviously. Wow. <laughs> Spent a lot of time in jail during the war as well. Um, pretty, yeah, what pretty are, notorious figure in British public life. Wait, so then who are the f- fictional characters? Then? Well, Lord Darlington's fake. Um, <clears throat> the car, all the major characters Cardinals, are fake. Yeah. 
The Mr. Cardinal and Reginald Cardinal are fake. Obviously, Stevens is fake. Dr. Carlyle. Yeah, okay, I know Stevens is fake. Miss Kenton's fake. (laughs) Did you you actually, did you recognize any of the, like, great gentlemen or great butlers that Stevens mentioned? Or are we supposed to I think the butlers are mostly fake. I think those, I think. I'm actually not certain. But I imagine, like, Mr. Graham, I think he's fake. I think. (laughs) What a shame. Mr. Graham seemed like a good hang. Yeah, he would stay up all night talking with Mr. Graham about what makes a great butler. Mr. Graham says you're just sort of bored, born with it, or 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 not. And and that's another that is another attack on Stevens' worldview for someone who devotes every waking minute to striving to be the best. Sort of cultivating himself. Yeah, and he he's he's fundamentally against that view of like oh you either got it or you don't. And yeah, Mr. Grimm. Can you it. imagine that? <laughs> that's what I'd like. That's the prequel I actually want to see. <laughs> okay, so going back to the you know the stuff about England, though, I found there were right. a lot of moments when um, you know Stevens uh, said something about England being like the greatest, the greatest country in the world, or the capable, landscape. Like, you know, the landscape is the Which best is in the world because, because it's it unostentatious. More, yes. Yeah, it's, <laughs> It's, it's reserved. More restrained, just well, okay, like somebody. Just like, yeah, it's. I think he's trying to tie it to the sort of, maybe sort of traditional notions of what it meant to be sort of a, an English gentleman, or maybe just sort of English full stop, which would be yeah to to show restraint, reserve, uh, the stiff upper lip cliche, you might say. Um, uh, and that the landscape, by being restrained but pleasant is what makes yeah. it the greatest in the world. Is that maybe. it's not, like, I think... It's not a show-off. It's not like going to band. Um, <laughs> there was an amazing, there was an amazing quote where he said something like, um, oh, something like, uh, let, like let compared me to, to somewhere in Africa or, the, or America, which would be, you know, some sort of <clears throat> dramatic mountain or waterfall or savanna or something. I, I I think that he said something like ostentatiously unseemly or, or something Yeah, hilarious. something unseemly, yeah. <laughs> Some yeah. sort of thing that was like, ah, so much beauty in this. Who wants that? Well, it's like it's it's show being a show-off. It's, it's, yeah. Yeah. Being um, sort of pleasant and reserved is better. I think, um, well, I think you can sort of look at the book as... Um, sort of going back a little bit to our in-depth dissection of Kazuo Ishiguro's life. So he's, uh, he grew up in England, but he was born in, in Japan and, and sort of came over with his family's parents are immigrants. So he, you could kind of look at the book through the perspective of he's sort of an insider and an outsider to England simultaneously. You might, you might think, um, I don't know how he feels about it personally, but you could, possibly see that and it's almost like examining sort of a um a character who is i think casual ishiguro himself said a well-recognized uh myth of england which Mm. is the 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 english butler was like a character that would be recognized internationally because i think he said he wanted to make the book comprehensible to outsiders but like as an examination of traditional English values, you might say, or traditional sort of passe notions of what it meant to be English, and sort of deconstructing them, which maybe comes easily to someone who has the familiarity 
of an insider, but the ability to distance oneself of someone who's simultaneously an outsider, right. maybe. Right, yeah. Because I think we were discussing before this that, you know, Kazuo Ishiguro has such an interesting background, but he chose kind of like the most traditional um, subject for this book. Like there is no whiff of being from, you know, anything other than... Yeah, there's no Japanese-ness to the book, you might <laughs> or say. Or Chinese-ness, which I believe, I, I still think that it's said somewhere, Ishiguro's father was raised in China, but... Could be. Eth- ethnically Japanese. Could also something not be. something to do with China. But yeah, I, I have not been able to, to, to find anything that corroborates this. If this isn't true, don't come after us, or at least not me, because yes. I wasn't saying any of it. <laughs> yes, please. But um, I have a good um, quote that I think uh, blends um, hu- some of this humor that we were talking about with... Um, bit of a meditation on English values and also some casual racism. The second instance of that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, this will be a good corollary to that. Okay, so page 43. It is sometimes said that butlers only truly exist in England. Other countries, whatever title is actually used, have only manservants. I tend to believe this is true. Continentals are unable to be butlers because they are as a breed incapable of the emotional restraint which only the English race are capable of. Continentals, and by and large the Celts, as you will no doubt agree. <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> he assumes we're going to agree with <laughs> Are, as a rule, unable to control themselves in moments of strong emotion and are thus unable to maintain a professional demeanor other than in the least challenging of situations. If I may return to my earlier metaphor, you will excuse my putting it so coarsely. They are like a man who will, with the slightest provocation, tear off his suit and his shirt and run about screaming. Yes. In a word, dignity is beyond such persons. We English have an important advantage over foreigners in this respect, and it is for this reason that when you think of a great butler, he is bound almost by definition to be an Englishman. Right. So that's very insightful into Well, it his comes back to when he says that, is to, that when he tells Dr. Carlyle dignity consists of not taking your clothes off in public. Yeah, that comes ties directly to that. directly to that, yeah. I mean, there is, in that last bit, an element of truth, like what that Ishiguro was talking about. Like, when you think of, one thinks of a butler, if we're being honest with ourselves, the guy speaks with a British accent. Like right, wouldn't right if you have to no, conjure up a butler character? <laughs> of so course, but his his derisive comments on the continentals and the Celts. The, the quote <laughs> continentals is yeah, is and the Celts too as well. So no Scottish <laughs> butlers, no Irish butlers. Yeah, <laughs> let alone French, I guess, or German. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um. So, but to go back to him as an unreliable narrator, you know, um, he. I so you don't notice. agree with his judgments there? You think that's unreliable? <laughs> uh, I did notice this time, you know, after a few readings, I picked up on this uh, tendency that he has to, he loves to describe himself laughing. 
Even though he doesn't I entered start with a laugh. Crying, he always says, Because it's oh, performative. I it's a performative laugh. Yeah, he's laughing constantly at these, like, super um, tragic moments where he, you know that he's crying or he's, like, super upset. The only times that he really even describes his reaction, he says, oh, I laughed. I laughed it's, in it's, it's a performative laugh that he he's like trained himself like maybe when entering a room like this would this would please my employer if I come in with a little bit of a laugh put or him like, at ease or when he's cornered or when uh, you know Miss Kenton is like demanding something trying to deflect him. trying to deflect like oh this is so silly why would you even yeah why would you even bring this up there there was a moment when they were having um, they were having an argument where she was trying to convince him of something and it, it was um, like the the proof was right outside the door, but he yes. so did not want to acknowledge that she was correct. Yeah. That um, he was doing everything in his power not to finish with his task and just make it last as long as possible so that he wouldn't be <laughs> kind of petty. Have to go outside. He's so petty, so passive aggressive. Really is. Yeah. And she kept saying like, "Well, if you'll just step step outside, then you can uh, make. Then you will be able to confirm that what I say is true." And he's yeah. like, "I will be able to confirm neither whether it is true or whether it is not, Miss Kenton. As you can yeah. see, I'm extremely busy. <laughs> Claiming to be very busy is is another polishing <laughs> trophies. <laughs> Classic." <laughs> He's like he always says like oh I'm so busy I can't I can't do anything I'm so busy, and and it it, it actually escalates to the point where um, this was so hilarious he said um, resolve not to waste further time on account of this childish affair I contemplated departure through the French windows. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, this is a childish affair. So that's the most mature response. Yeah, to jump out the window. <laughs> and also not particularly dignified, although I don't think he was seriously considering he decided he decided against it. I don't think he I don't think he was seriously considering doing that, but yeah. I don't know. Maybe I, I think he was. To say. Any other instances of unreliable narrator? moments oh yes it's, it's pretty much it's just like a it's a document of of unreliableness it's, is there any other important the ones whole book is um well i think that he um his defensiveness um a lot like of the scenes his, with miss kenton i think are like that oh for sure but also even to the narrator there are a lot of moments when you know you can sense that he's genuinely excited about something or genuinely upset about something and he always says um, at this moment I felt, and then he would put an M dash, why hide it? Or, uh, yes, what do you see I have to hide? You know, why and should, why should moments, I not say it? Yeah. Yeah. Like that's, that's when you know, it's really, it's really something important to him that he feels really defensive about or really you know, affected by. So he's like going for this show of, of indifference or, um, you know, oh, there's, it's not harming anyone to say this. This doesn't mean anything. There's no yes. significance to this. It's He'll always have to, on that. he has to insist to himself. Mm-hmm. Before he's willing to disclose uh, a, an actual, genuine emotion he felt, he has to justify it to himself almost. Mm-hmm. Okay, and before... Yeah, yeah, you continue, continue. No, 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 sorry, go, go ahead. Okay, so I was going to say, uh, before... There is one... Actually, this makes me think of one moment we really have to discuss, but uh, <laughs> before before that, like as a lead-up to it, um, what, do you, what do you make of his relationship with Miss Kenton, because it is the most important oh my God. relationship okay. in the book. Besides, they, were, you know. they were the most exciting scenes with Miss Kenton. I loved when she was in it. 
I love her, the, the way that she compliments his character is so great. Um, she's also a fairly proper sort of English. Totally. She's um, not, she's woman. not a, um, she's not a manic pixie dream girl. She's not like this, you know, <laughs> she's not this girl bursting with a life and vitality. Who's, you know, skipping in and disrupting <laughs> she's not his 500 life. 500 days of summer or whatever. No, she's not Zoe Deschanel <laughs> from 500 days of summer. She's she not is, Zoe Deschanel. she's the, she is a vert. <laughs> like she is, um, she's a breath of fresh air. She's like a hint of possibility for him because she actually is in touch with her emotions and she yeah. is in touch with, um, like what it means to be a person and to do a good job. Like she, She's very yeah. good at her job. She's extremely qualified. In she's fact, very professional. She always accuses him of looking for flaws in her work and being unable to find them. So she really like balances both those things. Um, and she's honest with herself. She kind of forces him to be more honest about with himself or she confronts him and she tries to get him to be even if he's not. Like she yeah. is like really the closest thing to opening him up and like saving him and she did they were doing that for a bit when she was there like with their cocoa nights like yeah there's a few scenes where you can kind of see yeah you can kind of sense in some of those discussions you know when she was like oh you it is a guilty smile you have and they're like teasing each other because he laughed a bit yeah yeah like like you i i really liked her i found her um you know to be very um like realistic enough she's still conservative you know she's still like a very proper conservative polite whatever but um she doesn't um take it to the quite the extremes yeah like you said she she's like she has emotions and is willing to express them and and actually she does try to like she brings him flowers to spruce up his room and stuff like that. Like she has considerations that extend beyond just her professional duties. So sort of their whole relationship is sort of her trying to coax him to be a little bit vulnerable yeah. and him resisting, you know, with an extreme sort of tenacity. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that And so why do you think she took it on herself to try and get this guy to open up essentially her colleague you know? I, I i don't think it started as anything like too significant i think that um i think that she just was you know a caring person a caring a caring agreeable person and i think that you don't get a sense of how he comes off to the staff, you know, because we only know him through his eyes. But I'm sure, based on a few of the comments that she said to him, um, that people totally view him as like a hard ass. And they must, right? Um, yeah, like that he he totally like alienates himself from other people unnecessarily. I'm sure she saw that, and that he has absolutely nothing in his room even though he could have so yeah. much more in his room to make it a bit more, you know, uh, pleasing. And she just decided to do something nice. So, like, like yeah. I, I don't think it started off as anything even significant, but I, I love how right. it turned into, like, this sense of frustration that she has that she just can't, that he, that he refuses to, like, humor her in any of these ways yet he he still clearly cares that is the key for me like she there were so many moments where he to us is just saying oh i was very busy that night so i was taking a tray down a flight of stairs but then she stomps out 
angrily confronts him, gets close to him and says, okay, so you're stomping around for the last 30 minutes. I guess you don't want me to leave. Trying to get my attention. Yeah. Yeah. You're trying to get my attention. And it's, we never would have known that without her just calling him on it and confronting him. Um, That happens so many times. (laughs) Yeah. It's in the, where it's in the dialogue that she'll say something that he hasn't disclosed the, the real meaning behind. Yeah. It takes her to sort of say it. She's willing to be more honest with herself. I, I, I honestly, I don't know why she ends up progressing with him. Like, I don't know how the relationship progresses when he, you know, it seems to all be her, like, pushing. It is. For, it really like, is. It really is all her putting in the effort. And, and what, yeah. what's so sad about it is that they seem to really get on well. And I guess it's because she also is pretty polite and she has. It was similar the enough. Same, yeah, similar enough, like, they, they they get on well, like, superficially at least, um, but... Well, and then, of course, she'll later reveal that she imagined having a, a life with him. Well, that, that's, that's the thing that, um, you know, I can't even see her ever thinking that's even possible. Like, the only indication that we got the entire book that they could have gotten anywhere romantically in that is even a possibility was that one moment where she takes the book from him yeah the tension you know maybe and maybe the atmosphere changes but well and then given given what she says when they finally meet so when they finally meet near the at the end of the book in present day in the 50s um she she says something the effect of uh so she left darlington hall when she got married to some other guy mr ben Mm -hmm. uh i think yeah mr ben yeah um i think yeah, and um, and obviously, if you're married, I guess you can't be a housekeeper. Back in the day, I guess that's just like you can't do it. Um, yeah. So, so she had to leave Darlington Hall. Oh, no, and, and I think he was setting up a business in his hometown in the West Country or something. So she had to move. She had to, to move with him. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so that's why she left Darlington Hall. And you know, there was a scene where Stevens recalls that when she lets him know. Yeah, I said yes when he asked me to marry him. Yeah, Steven is just like, "Congratulations, bye. I gotta I know. work." I and know. And then, and then, and then she's clearly. Um, she wants more. <laughs> yeah, she's clearly sort of distraught that you know, after fourteen years or however long, you know, after so many years working in this house, that's all you're gonna say, just congratulations, bye. You and know? then of course he says, "Miss Kenton, I'm extremely busy." <laughs> yeah, the classic line. Um, so. The, you know the fact you know the fact that she cared enough to be like that's all you're gonna say and then um when they meet finally she says you know when i married she about the life well when i she, she, she says when i married mr ben at first i sort of thought oh i'll be back soon this is just yeah. another ruse to annoy mr stevens yeah another one i think she said like yeah you know so yeah. if that's I know, true you really you really get a sense through through so few but such precise um like dialogue you really get a sense of how she views him in those yeah well i don't know does that you know taking up this evidence together does that mean that she eventually sort of had feelings for mr stevens in the way that we can assume that he does for her she said i thought about a life that i would have 
with you. Yeah. yeah. She outright says it. She finally acknowledges something that's never been acknowledged in all yeah. that time, which I think is why I think that's why it breaks in the, would, in the next paragraph. Like, I think it's like she fully just said it finally. Yep. That that was possible. And I think that was what was so devastating for him. Well, I think that's partially why she keeps at it. She keeps banging her head against the wall, I, so I know, to speak. But, okay, I guess my, I guess my to, question uh, <laughs> is, why does she have feelings for him? Because somebody who is this obstinate is a lost cause. Anyone can see that. I guess yes. she couldn't. Yeah. Or maybe she could, <laughs> like, and you can't it, control this stuff. You know, you know, she didn't sit down rationally and decide. Does this mean Stevens is a virgin? <laughs> Like, wow now that's the question isn't it <laughs> that's so like I that's what so we'll find out in, in young stevens we'll definitely find that out <laughs> I, I guess that he didn't he, i guess he wasn't born a butler <laughs> no <laughs> it's he hard to even a, imagine him he came out as a baby in, yeah, a, in like, a suit just... <laughs> with, a, with a tray with port on it <laughs> handed it to the doctor <laughs> but I, I think another thing that is so um tragic about this though is that i really got the sense that it couldn't have ended up any other way well no like, because there's a, there's he's, a sense, he's not there he's not ready yeah like there's a sense of possibility but it's it's never real possibility it's like this is what you could have done if you had been different if he was a different person back then. essentially yeah like if you if you had chosen a different if you'd gone in a different I don't know if 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 the crossroads of your life you you had done something differently fifty years ago you know yeah. or thirty years ago yeah, or whatever exactly. like he 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 was he was always kind of doomed like he um, once he decided that you know the whole butler thing is <laughs> his whole life <laughs> yeah like it's to be with Miss Kenton he would have had to trash all of his values and well he would have well he w- not even really he would have had to give a bit of ground okay a bit but 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 he wasn't um, willing to do that even. but the thing is he the thing that he finds the most annoying the most unprofessional is when you know people run away together who are to get married under yeah. a house who are not taking their job seriously enough he would kind of become that if he did that you know he would, so he and wouldn't be willing to do that in, according to his own code yeah his own yeah code like he would he would have to like give in to his personal self over the professional self and, and his whole that just goes against him doing yeah the exact opposite and that's why i feel like it's kind of inevitable what happens it's just so painful because it's so counterintuitive to like what would make him happy but what's the tragedy he had so of, many of he had so many chances and he rejected them all and usually the hard part is like getting the other person to be you know into you and like willing to do this with you she would have been it it was all him it was it was him who kind of sabotaged that entirely so i think so you mentioned yeah i completely agree i think that's that's the tragedy of it it's his commitment to his own values that essentially prevents him from having you know a life with someone else essentially and yeah, um, but, you know what else though is that he, I'm sh- I'm sure that what he would have loved, what would have been happy for him, is if she had just never left. They had yeah. never become a couple, but they had just stayed kind of platonically growing old together under the house of a great man or whatever. That would have been s- the best case scenario for him. I think you're right. But I totally respect that. 
that's not enough. That's not enough for a person. That's not enough for her to be second to, you know, being in service to Lord Darlington. Like, that's not a life. And she was not okay with that, even though, you know, that was like a sad decision for both of them. It's good that she didn't do it. Oh, I I agree completely. Um, I think that, so we were mentioning sort of like the, uh, when they meet, sort of their final exchanges that they have at the bus stop. And I think that it, there's a pretty, there's an important moment there where I think you might make the case, well, you actually brought it up, that maybe for the first time in the book, uh, the, the narration is actually pretty frank and honest mm-hmm. about his emotions the when he says moment, yeah. why should i not admit it that mo- at that moment my heart was breaking when she mm-hmm. talks about how she imagined a life with him and you could almost like you could you could possibly say that the next sort of exchange they have is another moment of maybe not honesty but sincerity mm-hmm. and w- at least warmth when he says you know, when Miss Kenton says, uh, well, she's Mrs. Ben at this point, I suppose, because she mar- she's married that guy. And she's saying, you know, they've had they've had their ups and downs in their marriage. She didn't really love him at first. Um, you know, and, you know, they've had their spot of troubles. And she's like, we're nearing the end of our lives. And it's just feeling kind of somewhat melancholy about this. And then he says, you know, uh, he says something, you know, I might as well read it. I think this is an important yeah, yeah, passage, yeah. so I'll Go read ahead. it. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> so she says, uh, you know, how she, this is after Miss Kenton says, like, she regrets maybe some, she looks back and regrets that they could not have had a life together, among other things. And um, Stevens, when replies to her, he says, you're very correct, Mrs. Ben. As you would say, it is too late to turn back the clock. Indeed, I would not be able to rest if I thought such ideas were the cause of unhappiness for you and your husband. We must, we must each of us, as you point out, be grateful for what we do have. And from what you tell me, Mrs. Ben, you have reason to be contented. In fact, I would venture, what with Mr. Ben retiring and with grandchildren on the way, that you and Mr. Ben have some extremely happy years before you. You really mustn't let any more foolish ideas come between yourself and the happiness you deserve. Of course you're right, Mr. Stevens. You're so kind. That's her talking. Ah, Mrs. Ben, that appears to be the bus coming now. The bus arrives. (laughs) And then um, just as she's getting on the bus, they have a final exchange where he says, Now, Mrs. Ben, you must take good care of yourself. Many say retirement is the best part of life for a married couple. You must do all you can to make these years happy ones for yourself and your husband. We may never meet again, Mrs. Ben, so I would ask you to take good heed of what I'm saying. So it's almost like that those last few exchanges he finally yes allows himself some warmth some yes human connection which he hadn't really done before that was that was such a, an act of generosity for him because he kind of realizes the full extent of what he missed out on and yet he still finally found it in his heart to put himself second to her needs like that was to, yeah, that to was finally so, be there emotionally oh. for her which especially he'd never done before, when he basically. said yeah like when he said um oh the happiness that you deserve it was like oh my god he finally that was so sad is that the <laughs> moment you cried so sad. i think it must have been it must have been oh oh actually no but i think i also probably cried at yes i cried at the 
oh my god his exchange with the butler where oh, he finally end. realizes yes. that his life has been in service to this wasteful you know where at least Lord Darlington ideal. made his own mistakes yeah oh god that was so oh and you know what I actually saw this oh this was so great okay so because I've read this before um I noticed just the intention behind even things as innocuous as scenery, you know, like um, him taking his English countryside drive. Like some of these things were kind of charged with meaning or really helped emphasize the feelings of um, nostalgia, but more like like wistfulness for the past, like the sense that the world has passed him by. I think that's definitely a sense you get reading it. Yes, and and this this in particular really stuck with me. It was after his car broke down, right? And he was trying to get to the town, or he suddenly looked over um, like a cliff or something, and he saw the town below. Um, and okay, let me just find it here. Okay, yes. So one has to confess at that moment to being overcome by a certain sense of discouragement. Of course, the situation was not by any means hopeless. The ford was not damaged, simply out of fuel. A walk down to the village could be accomplished in half in a half hour or so, and there I could surely find accommodation and a can of petrol. And yet it was not a happy feeling to be up there on a lonely hill, looking over a gate at the lights coming on in a distant village, the daylight all but faded, and the mist growing ever thicker. So, oh yeah, a bit of uh, foreshadowing or sort of yeah. imagery there. It's like the sun's about to set. He's um, looking from this great distance to like a town that's lit up with warmth and people. And he's far and away from it. He's alone on a hill, cold yeah. and distant. Yeah. So that's that good. was that was so good. I was like, wow. Good. This bravo, guy bravo, is such bravo, a master. Kazuo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And, and that's not even something that on your first read you would even pick up on, but yet it made its way in there and like I'm getting stuff from, I'm getting stuff from this on book third that I, read. Yeah, that I didn't even pick up on before. So yeah, yeah that well, sense mean, of waste is so is so pervasive throughout the book if you And obviously the sort of evening end of the day imagery to represent, you know, old age is you know, it's a through line. It's the title of the book. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, let's discuss Among the title. Things, let's discuss um, this title. Okay, okay, what do you think? What do you well, think on this title? So the remains of the day, what's left of a day. And like I said, like the, there's a through line of using sort of the evening and the sort of beginning of nighttime as sort of a parallel to old age and the ending of one's life. It's to the time when... You look back on what you've done that day, and uh, maybe if you're lucky, you get to, you know, say, well, I've done my work, kick up your feet and rest, like the butler at the end says. Or maybe that's the time when you think to yourself, well, you know, <laughs> could have gone better. <laughs> could have gone better. And of course, if it's a, a day, that's fine. You just do something different tomorrow. But if it's your life, then that's kind of... Well, maybe a bit of a bra moment. <laughs> <laughs> Quite a bra moment. 
I yeah, mean, that's sort I, of how I took it. Do you have anything else to... Well, okay, I guess it all depends on how you, on how you view that ending. Um, well, I guess, okay, no, I'll come back to that. But I thought what was so awesome about the title that I had never really even considered before is, um, you know, the man at the end, he says, oh, you should make what's you should make the best of what remains of your day or something like yeah, that. Yeah, right? a lot of people so, think like, evening's the best time of day. Yeah, like what little what little life you have, appreciate it to the fullest and and try to enjoy yourself and, you know, reap the fruit, what, reap the reward. For, you, what is nice. the term? Well <laughs> uh, reap, reap your the, reward, yeah, sure. Yeah, reap your reward. Okay, yeah, sure. Or like the fruits of your labor, you know. There you go. Um, but the thing is, I don't, I don't think the ending was, I think it was a false victory. Did you see the end of Parasite? (laughs) I did see Parasite. Yeah. You know how at the end he's like, I'm going to be rich. Oh yeah. And I'm going to, I'm going to get all this money and I'm going to buy this house back and I'm going to, and then they end it you're invited to doubt it. Yeah. You're invited to doubt it with that, see that shot of like a, like a, like a, um, what's the, what's that thing that like is over babies' heads? Oh, like, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. It's like in a crib, in a crib, the thing that spins around. Yeah, yeah the thing that spins around. It, it's like that thing, but made out of like dirty socks or something. Because he's in his <laughs> right. basement apartment, like freezing, yeah, and poor, and that's how it ends. And and yeah, we're meant to think that that's copium, essentially. Yeah, and and that that is how I interpreted the end of this. Like, he he ends on this false sense of hope of, yeah. I'm gonna finally master banter, and I'm gonna go back, yes. and I'm gonna be even better of a butler to my new employer. Yeah, well, and I mean, that, the fact that that's how he's conceiving it, yeah, already makes you think that. Yeah, I mean, there's. I suppose that what you could say is like. He doesn't have any other ends, any sort of, any other sort of aims, you know, that he might apply any lessons he might learn to. It's too late for anything to, you know, he can't, you know, he can't have a romantic relationship with anyone, you know, that ship sailed. He can't reconcile with his family, like, he doesn't have any family, and he never reconciled his father. Um, All he has left is being a butler, and I suppose the fact... I mean, you might say even then, you know, it's never too late to form connections with other people. They don't have to be family or romantic. He could make friends, for instance. He maybe had a chance with the other butler on the pier (laughs) when he notices that um, he notices like a crowd of people who we thought were close friends at first, but then listening to their conversation, realized they were strangers, but they were already, uh, you know, talking with each other so easily. yeah, I guess that's that possibility is open to him. Maybe, but but I don't but think it is. I think it's this. If he's going to spend the rest of his life, you know, it's this distance from them, though. Of like, Darlington how how Hall. could they how could they become so close in so short a time? And they're doing it through banter, which I haven't mastered yet. And it's, he can't it's understand like, it. It's he like trying re- to reduce it to a science. The, his like witticisms and all this. What's well, the same when stuff. he trained himself to do everything else he had to to be a butler? Like he, you know, he practiced, you know, getting his voice and his, you know, way of speaking to be perfect. He practiced, you know, but those memorizing are things that every don't... room in the hall. 
Those are the things knows. that don't come naturally, though. The, the socializing with people, connecting with people, like, quickly, like, those are, those are, like, natural social yeah, abilities no, that he... Yeah, but for Stevens, for Stevens, that's all he knows. So he yeah. has to, he has to think of everything that way. Yeah, so that, that was so, that was so sad, but it was also a perfect, like, a perfect way to contain a story from this character's perspective like this is the most steven's way it could possibly end you know yeah like, like he's fairly up he's you know somewhat optimistic about maybe he's able to turn some corners in his life but the way he conceives of it is he'll be able to provide better yeah. banter for mr faraday well that's the red flag that's how you know it's not the author's intention is not you know, for you to think, oh, his life yeah. is being saved in this moment. And well, because I mean, because we can't, I can't even imagine what, what, uh, what a genuine turning the corner might be for him. Like, I can't, like, he can't even no, imagine. No, but that, it. it's, it's not even possible. That's the point, I guess, is that it, it really yeah. is too late, not just because he can't do anything because he's old, but just this is who he is as a person now and it's he's you know, too set in his ways also yeah the time to turn back was a long i think time both ago. i think they're both correct not only is he's too much you know he's gone too far uh you might say um into building himself into this trap of you know uh tra this trap of his own values and persona and there's also just there is no way like there are no people like all the close relationships who that could have been close right yeah he can't they're gone he can't do anything about that yeah so it's both of those things together right that's why i think i agree i mean we're invited to we're invited to doubt uh just how much change will actually come about because of this so so this is why i thought that the title was so awesome because um you know the remains of the day it's deceptively simple or it, it kind of seems like it's implying oh make the most of what remains of your day but really i think it's more you know trying to you know elicit this sense of waste the remains of the day. It's like you think of ashes and oh, that's good. Something dead, you know. It's good. It's good double meaning. Yeah. So, this is ultimately the story of a guy looking back on his life and on the corpse finally, of his life. The corpse of his life. Oh God! And he's finally in a position where he gets to evaluate it. He's been go 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 his whole career, and th these are his first days off in however many decades or whatever. So that he gave his um, best to a guy who yeah. didn't deserve it and he's got nothing yeah. left to give essentially a guy who didn't deserve it and who whose decisions pr made, made it so that he never even got to decide anything for himself and and especially when steven says where's the dignity in that it's yeah, like oh that's he's true. really lost everything it's that's so that's him it's really so him evaluating sad. himself on his own terms yeah yeah so that's where the tears probably peaked. <laughs> probably. <laughs> we were to chart the graph of the tears. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, that's why this, I don't know. I, I can't return to this book for a while. It's In fact, maybe ever. It's so I mean, three is a lot. Gutting. 
three is a lot. The, I can count the number of books I've read three times on, on one hand, probably. Well, I know. I'm actually, I was almost too familiar with it this time, where, um, like, I need a good maybe five or ten years before I, like, if I read it again, like, next year, I would know it too well to really feel the impact of it. Yeah, no, that's good. Yeah. I think that's probably, you don't want to read a book, like, a year after, like, The Hunger Games, they hadn't read them in ten years. Oh, yeah. The Hunger Games was a perfect amount of time to wait. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, we're, yeah, I think that's right. You don't want to read, you want five, six years at least between reads of the book. So anyway, I think that we should go into our name that Chad quickly and then brush on the movie, (laughs) our impressions of the movie. But I just want to add as a last thing. I think that's pretty much, yeah, yeah, yeah. Last point about the book, because I think we covered most of the major points. It's not even a point. It's just, I wrote this line down and I, I unfortunately didn't get to use it during this conversation. But so Lord Darlington is a Nazi sympathizer. Yeah. Stevens is a Nazi sympathizer sympathizer. Ah, yes. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Good. That's it. Yeah, because he doesn't, he doesn't have <laughs> political opinions of his own. Like, I think no. you can genuinely say that about him. Like, he just doesn't care. But he, does, he gave his whole life to this guy. Some pretty sordid uh, opinions and actions. And and also like you did see that there was there was a conscience there, you know, struggling to stay contained. Like when he when he pretended to Miss Kenton that he didn't care about firing the Jewish employees. Um, yeah, but he tells us that he And then he admitted later. He admit and he admitted to her later that that he did care, but he just didn't show it at the time. Yeah, I just thought it wasn't his place to disagree with Lord Darlington. And then when uh, Mr. Cardinal was saying, you're not even curious? You're not even curious about what's happening through those doors. And he was like, oh, it's not my place to be curious. You know, maybe he was a bit too far gone by that point. But um, clearly it was distressing to him on some level because his recollections were filled with self-deception and defense mechanisms and all this stuff so that's good so that yeah. line you used if you were writing a paper about it that's that's what you'd write. exactly exactly <laughs> i was like how when can i ever use this again <laughs> it's that never like gonna me. be I was useful desperately trying to find it was definitely desperately trying to find an occasion to read the tiger story i i just i, I was like <laughs> i need to shoehorn this in somehow <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, that was hmm, that was maybe my a, only one. Segue. <laughs> I I bolded it in that's my fair. notes. <laughs> but like, yeah, I, I think to, I have to say this. Yeah, this like this good. is this is gonna be so. And then it would have been You're even like, better if it had occurred naturally. It would have been so uh, awesome. But no. You're like Lee. We really did it this time. <laughs> <laughs> this is a good sentence we just wrote. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, okay so, so yeah, that's basically the book, and now we're uh, yeah we'll do we'll do our classic segment, our name that Chad segment. I feel like we could have done more on the introduction of new information, how in, it insidiously it kind of builds on top of what we last learned, but that's it. I just said it. That's that's the whole point, I guess. The way that the information is yeah. presented in this being you know very expertly built in a way that you don't really get the full picture till the end but you get these hints of it throughout 
that's yeah, it. So that's that's all there is to say. So we're going to do name that Chad now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. Okay. So we, you know what? Th- Speaking of transitions, we need to work on our transitions. No, that was perfect. That was fine. We should no take need. a page no out need. of Mr. Ishiguro's book. That's true. We should we should maybe try to be more like Kazuo Ishiguro with the smoothness of our transitions. It's true. Yeah. Um, oh, well. okay. We're so a long, I, we're a long a, way from that. I have a feeling that um, our chat is the same person because there's only like three characters in this book. Okay. So. We were discussing this earlier, and I said to you, this was when I was only about halfway through, to be fair. I said, I think this is a book without chads. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's still a fair thing to say, but I do have a couple of picks. Okay, a couple? So, yeah, a couple of picks. Okay. Three, actually. Oh, my <laughs> so gosh. So, I, I, I did a real 180 um, from okay. none to three. So, the first one might not count okay. because he might not be real it is of course the butler from the tiger story <laughs> okay now i understand what happened i'm not but surprised. he might not he might not be real so yeah, he, he might, might not, not count real. so okay. if he's real he is the biggest chad and it's not even close <laughs> but, <laughs> but so pick number two is dr carlisle Oh, yeah. Actually, yes. Dr. Carlisle is a Chad. I think the way he handled the situation, you know, he had a good sense of humor, but he wasn't mean or cruel to Stevens yeah. in the way he might have been. Oh, um, yeah. He, he let him keep his dignity, in fact. And he then did. later on when Stevens was like, I wasn't trying to um, mislead anyone. He was like, oh, no, good chap. Like, I understand <laughs> what happened. Yeah. Well, I think I understand what happened. Like, yeah, he he's like, he's like, hey, you know, if you death. got mistaken for a lord, like, why wouldn't you play he's into like, it? Of course, these people would think that. Of you. <laughs> Don't worry. Yeah, he's 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 like he's a good guy, you know. From what we see of him, he's he's very good natured and doesn't he he doesn't take advantage of an opportunity to be a jerk. So I think yeah. that's Chad behavior. Yep, yep. I I am behind that for sure. And then my third pick, which I assume is yours, yep. is Reginald Cardinal. What? Oh no! That's is not it, my is yours, Miss Kenton? Yeah, <laughs> that's Mine's fair. Miss Kenton. Actually, I picked my Chad midway through, but I did think Cardinal was pretty Chadly when he yeah. was standing up for what was right, and then he was later killed in Belgium. So that's true. I mean, this guy's a war hero. He and yeah, yeah. He, he at one point he takes Stevens aside, you know, and he's like. You basically like, can't you see like Lord Darlington? He's like being taken advantage of by these terrible people. Like, you know, he's being played for a fool. Like, yeah. you know, and he's like, I care about him. He's my godfather. So he's not even like, you know, he's like, he does it for noble reasons. Like, per, you know, he's he's genuinely upset that someone he cares about is going down such a dark path. And he's, yeah, he's you know, and he's you know, pretty nice to Stevens overall. He's like, we're friends, aren't we? And he's like. I order you to sit down. <laughs> <laughs> but then, like, the f- Stevens gave him nothing. He gave well, he him really, nothing. Yeah, well, of course he didn't. Yeah. But, yeah, so, so I, I think Miss Kenton is a very fair pick as well. I don't really, I don't think, I don't think I have any qualms with her being. I, I guess it's just that she doesn't do anything obviously Chad-like, like in the sense of there's no 
yeah. moment to shine. She's more sort of a decent I, person. Exactly. Well, I think I was just, I picked her as the Chad because I just wanted to kind of reward her for, you know, she is his voice of reason in a way or his conscience in a way. She urges him to not pretend and to live and to be honest with himself and to feel his true feelings. And it's not her fault that he does not heed that warning. So It's true. And ultimately, you know. there's nothing more Chadley than being there for people you care about. So And, and like, she, she <laughs> stuck by her values, even though she also admits her weaknesses. She couldn't leave on principle because Lord Darlington right. fired her girls. But... She still felt that it was extremely wrong, and she acknowledged that she was being like somewhat hypocritical by not being able to leave. But she also had no feasible way to make a living um, without doing it. Like I just admire someone who yeah, can she's you know, admit that about herself, but she also reacts in a way that is true to herself, and you know that was that was good about her, and also. She's kind of a victim of Stephen's choices as well, because if they could have lived, they could have both been happy with each other. They wanted yeah. the other. And so instead, she, she had to sort of settle for someone else. Yeah, she totally settled. Like even though she's you know happy now, she left her husband three times. She didn't love him when she married him for a long time. She yeah, I mean she loves seems, her daughter presumably, but yeah, yeah. the husband's a bit of a <laughs> a bit of a, a bit of a, a bit of an L. Yeah. Poor, poor husband though. I feel, I feel bad for him because he's probably fine with her. And yeah, Mr. Her. Ben, come on. So we need like, a young Mr. Ben series, actually. Yeah, <laughs> but like, he kind of ruined her life too. Not ruined, but she would have preferred to be with him, I'm sure. And he, he, de he deprived them both of that possibility and that future. So it's true. Yeah, Miss Kenton. She's a fair choice for Chad. Being a decent, <clears throat> honest, and emotionally vulnerable person, if that isn't Chadley, I don't know what is. <laughs> exactly. But I understand a, a war hero uh, has a big. He has a, he has a big moment where he stands up yeah, for, for what's right. Yeah, he's got a big moment, for sure. Yeah. It's made and some more also, obvious choice. His, his conversation with Stevens where he was talking about this briefcase having every permutation that yes. one could think of was yeah that was hilarious. a hilarious that was a hilarious <laughs> scene where darlington asks stevens to explain sex to his godson because he doesn't want to and <laughs> so he wants to get his servant well even... yeah that I, we never got uh, the scene where he actually does it i know he keeps it was getting a total misdirect it was a total misdirect it was it was amazing keeps also getting when he was, that was hilarious he was talking about how oh the geese are looking good today yeah and he's like actually every natural creature will be relevant to our discussion and the guy was like oh i'm a fish man myself i'm more of a fish man yeah i love fish yeah i'm so and then he oblivious brought it up later he was like so fish you say Steve? Yeah, we were talking after about his dad died yeah he was like yeah we were talking about nature the glories of nature as you put it yeah that, so, scene, that whole bit was very funny. You know what? I'm behind. I'm behind Mr. Reginald Cardinal. Cardinal now. Cardinal. Yeah. 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 He's a good pick. Yeah, he's a good pick. He's a but solid pick. But if the tiger guy is real, then he is the top, Chad. 
fine. I, I agree with that, I guess. Yeah. Um, okay, we're nearly, we've basically done, talked about everything we need to. Do you want to briefly mention the fact that there is a movie of this? Yes, yeah, so you, you watched the movie recently. Yeah, a couple of days ago, yeah. I watched it maybe a couple of years ago. Yeah, um, and I, I think it's, it's pretty good. I, I just wanted to say that, you know, of course it's good. The, adap- the adaptation was done well. Um, the inherent limitation of it is it's a visual medium and this is a psychological book. It's such so, a novel. It's so yeah. interior, you know, yeah. to his own stream of consciousness. Yeah. So every externalization of Stephen's um, mood or, you know, like troubledness or anger or whatever felt out of character. But I also see how there's no way you can kind of avoid it because if he never uh, sh- reveals his true feelings ever it's not a very interesting movie oh that is close i was saying that's close to how i imagined he would be like to watch in the book like like it would be i think he yeah it would be very difficult 99 percent of the time to tell that he was feeling anything like that's the impression you get whereas in the movie you have to like you're saying you have to heighten this a little bit Mm -hmm. you have to make it Mm -hmm. that the audience can more or less always guess uh, what he's actually feeling, um, yeah. and he was played very well by Anthony Hopkins, I think. Um, but and Anthony and more Hopkins, than Anthony Hopkins has dignity, though. Like you see him, and you're like, "Holy shit!" He's like a distinguished, like incredible actor. So that's, well, you don't that's why he was a good pick, I think. No, but but no, because he, you look at him and you have this immediate respect for him. So there's not that kind of insecurity that you. I I feel right. like Stevens is just a little bit more, a bit less chadley you know yeah well he's not i don't think he's a chad yeah i definitely (laughs) wouldn't say that his his humor as well like you want to feel bad for him you want he he elicits pity and and that's That's really him hilarious i don't know if anthony hop he has too much dignity anthony hopkins to really pity him and it's hard for you to feel bad it's hard for you to feel bad for him you're saying was was he making those like weird jokes in the movie I don't think they include the jokes. I don't no, think they include the... How could that translate? More like swallows than crows. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. It's too I don't weird, think, I guess. I, I think that he was good, but I agree that... It, he wasn't it just, quite the same character. He Exactly. Yeah. Although I will say that Emma Thompson is Miss Kenton. Oh, totally. Is more Emma or less Thompson was perfect. Miss, Miss, yeah. She yeah. was what I thought of. More yeah. or less exactly... Like, it matched pretty much exactly... Yeah. how i imagined her in the book and then there's also just a few plot elements where they change it's pretty faithful actually but they change a few scenes and almost all of them i find to the detriment of the movie because there's a few very important scenes that have small changes like when his father's dying he doesn't say i'm you know i wasn't a good father i'm proud of you like he, those lines aren't said, which are quite important. I feel oh. like, and I don't know what why you would say? cut them. I don't even, rem- I don't remember, but it's not. I remember thinking to myself, "Oh, why would you not include these lines?" Right? Like, yeah, I guess um, they could be considered too much, like telling or something, or like too emotion, too sentimental or whatever. 
and but also yeah, the way I mean, in the, the context of the book, it's the most restrained character, the most repressed character of all time. So yeah, finally saying something. Dialogue is okay. Works yeah. for that character. I agree. In in yeah. certain this moment, and then like the way they sort of make it so that. And the scene at the pier, he doesn't run into another butler, but it, he goes there with Miss Kenton, and she says his li- like the other butler's lines. Like, she yeah. says the evening's the best. Pr- some people say the evening's that, that the best must have part been of the a day. Time, a time cutting measure, like, yeah, they just didn't want to turn that into two scenes. I guess. I guess, but it, it it's so much less. Yeah. The way like the way it plays out in the book is like chef's kiss, perfect yeah. resolution. Yeah. And so why you would tamper with that when you don't have to, I don't think, you know, and just the scene where they say goodbye to each other, you know, I was like, it's so perfect in this book. And I feel like it just doesn't, didn't quite come across. Although my dad would disagree. He thought it was great. And my mom as well. Although my <laughs> mom, she's read the book too. And she agrees with me that the book's better. But my dad, who's only seen the movie, said he has a very high opinion of it so <laughs> well i mean it was really sad how i remember she like puts her hand over her mouth and she starts crying as he watches her like go away on the train yeah, or something it's, it's good it's, it's good. good but if you've read the book you know that that version's slightly better done i think you know it's interesting though because in the book it leaves so much up to the imagination like the omissions really make you have to skip ahead or not notice certain things so and the fact that you have to imagine how each line is delivered yeah whereas in a film they essentially have to commit to a yeah they, exactly they have to commit to an interpretation and also they have to fill in the gaps of what the book doesn't say visually yeah. so you know yeah but not it's a bad not, movie by any means yeah. I would I would say give it a watch if you've read the book. I mean, book, it's an it. Oscar winner. It's like multi Oscar winner. So did it win Best I, Picture? Did it? I don't know if it won Best Picture, but maybe it did. It won a lot of things, I think. He didn't win though, did he? He won for Silence of the Lambs, didn't he? Isn't wasn't that his first? I don't know. But yeah, it's good. Anything. It's a good. But movie. yeah, check it out. <laughs> yeah, I believe the check producer. The I believe the producer is named Ismail, which is basically my name so that's cool i i was watching the credits and i was like i literally was i was the leonardo dicaprio pointing at the television meme i literally did that i was like oh look it's my name oh also the bird the bird symbolism they did well the The bird scene was nice with uh superman yeah it was was nice and succinct yeah that was a good addition superman what are you talking about the actor was the same actor who played Superman in the uh, the first Superman movie. The actor what? who plays Mr. Um, well, it's actually not Mr. Faraday. They actually make it so that Mr. Lewis, the American who stands up at the oh. conference, buys Darlington Hall. Um, oh. They combine the characters, but anyway, oh, he's played. Okay. He's played, but I didn't actually care that much about that change. That's to be a, that's an elegant change because it just requires less explanation yeah exactly um and uh yeah he was played by christopher reeve the actor who played superman anyway that's why i said oh oh that's right i remember now i remember now yeah i don't even remember what happens with the bird but i just remember that it was the pigeon flies in and then they let it free 
but no, no. But then I think it shows it from Close the perspective, the yeah, from the from behind the window, of the pigeon or something. He is still he's trapped behind inside. the window, exactly. Yeah. yeah, that was good. Yeah. That was a good addition. Oh, that's very good. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's pretty much it, right? You know. Yeah. So I'm. Um, was it worth it? Yes. Yeah. Come on. Yes, it was. Of course. Why do we even have this segment? We have to do a bad book soon. When we do to, divergent to or, defend uh, this segment. No, we're not doing four. another. We're not doing another dystopian teen book yeah no when we do so when we do the rise of nine <laughs> yeah we're gonna skip to the rise of nine over yeah we're not we're not gonna four. do we're just gonna go right to rise of nine exactly yeah okay well this has been trish and ish on it's not what it's called no no it's oh no no i'm saying this oh, has been that's trish and ish you and i on what's it called again goodbye everyone <laughs> <laughs> don't come after me yeah. <laughs> yes, that's right. Okay. See you next week. Bye.